Welcome to the Story Night Podcast, a place where we share hearts, our hurts, and how God's wonder intersects with the story of our lives. A ministry of Calvary Mac. Here's our host, Jessica Campbell. Hey ladies, and welcome back to the Story Night Podcast. Tonight we have another special throwback episode, but before I play that recording for you, I wanted to share with you the promotional video in audio form so that you can just hear what this story is going to be about. The words are very specific to our speaker's story, but I think they will resonate with everyone. I have a story. It's a story of my journey through life's toughest experiences. A story about uncertainty, about obstacles, about facing fears. It's about breakdowns, emotional and physical, and breakthroughs. About racing toward the light at the end of the tunnel, even in the darkest of moments. A story about one of the greatest losses that created what seemed to be insurmountable loneliness. But I was not alone. He was always with me. My story is about being knocked down getting back up again. And despite the things I faced, I still leaned into him and went for it. My story is about resilience. I have a story. Well, I hope that got you excited to hear this woman's story. Tonight, I've got Amy Yates with me, and we're going to play the recording of her live story night that we did um, just earlier this year uh, in January. And I am going to include the link to the video in these episode notes. So you are more than welcome to click on that if you'd like to watch her as she shares her story. But if you do that, be sure to tune back in to the end of this audio podcast because Amy's going to be chatting with us just a little bit at the end for some closing remarks, some words of hope, and a prayer for our listeners. And so with that, let's listen in to Amy's story. I haven't cried during any of the preparation for this, but darn that lady. (laughs) Well, I'm really excited to see so many people here. I had no idea that that beautiful video that they made would have 2,700 views on Facebook. (laughs) They, They did a really good job. Thank you, men in the man cave. Well, what you think you might know about me from um, at least the Triumphs page is that I like to compete. (laughs) And I'm kind of serious about it. But I'm not a gifted athlete by any means. And there is so much more to me than all of those. I'm blessed and honored to get this chance to share my story of grit perseverance, and resilience with all of you. Based on, oh, I have slides. Forgot about that part. There we go. Based on the first year of my life, my parents, Gary and Donna, would have never fathomed that they would see me like this today. A little background first. My father is the kind of man who took special care of me. He's a devoted and hardworking father, He's the kind of man who was always looking for the next big thing to make him successful. He built the dairy farm I grew up on from the ground up, owned several businesses, and ran a 900-acre ranch at one time. He was always around, 
with the farms. But we didn't see him much, and he only went to church with us on Christmas and Easter. He loved Christmas and couldn't wait to share the magic of Santa Claus with my brother and sister and I. He wanted to fill our hearts with delight and wonder, but it confused me to find out that Santa wasn't real, along with other things I was told to believe in, the Easter Bunny, the Tooth Fairy. I was told to believe and then found out those things weren't real. It made me question the reality of God about the time I was a teenager. Was he something that I was just told to believe in and wasn't real? My mom, my wonderful, wonderful mother, you met her. She's a thoughtful and intentional mother who always prays for me when I'm sick, when I'm sad, when I'm in trouble, and when I'm not any of those things. She came from a faith-filled background. Her father was a pastor, and he came from a large faith-filled family. Her grandfather helped establish Multnomah University, which used to be called Multnomah School of the Bible. Her uncle, my great-uncle Ken Taylor, was the one who paraphrased the Living Bible. She passed that influence on to me by sending me to Christian school and taking me to church. But with the question in my mind of whether or not God was actually real and a fallout with some friends in youth group, I stopped believing around the age of 13. Before all that, though, I had some challenges. I was born with congenital heart defects. I was also getting sick or injured pretty often, and I suppose those incidents were treated with great worry since I had such a rough start. I was born with an atrial septal defect, cleft mitral valve, and pulmonary veins that drained the wrong way across my heart. Simply put, I had a hole in my heart and a leaky valve. When I was two years old, (laughs) so this is not just the typical naked baby picture. (laughs) If you look carefully, I have very small legs and small hips and quite a large torso because my heart was working so hard that it was actually bigger than it needed to be. When I was two years old, I had open heart surgery. Keep in mind, this was 1976. And for my particular issue, there wasn't a lot of history or experience. After surgery was done and my parents were waiting to see me, doctors and nurses rushed by them and into the ICU. A nurse took my parents into a room and asked if they wanted a chaplain. My mom told the nurse they needed to find her dad. At least 10 family members were there and came into the room to pray with them. A few hours and a few blood transfusions later, Dr. Starr came out and explained what had happened. They had to reopen my chest in the recovery room because my chest cavity was filling with blood. I had come within inches of dying. That nurse who asked about the chaplain was preparing my parents for the loss of me. I did okay for a while after that, but at the age of eight, I was only going to school a half day because I was too tired to make it for the whole day. It was time for another open heart surgery. The doctor who was performing the surgery was the doctor who invented the artificial valve. The intention was to likely replace my valve with an artificial one, and praise the Lord, in surgery they found they could just repair the valve. After recovering, I remember the doctors telling me that I was allowed to do what I could and rest when I got tired. I also remember the doctors telling me I couldn't or shouldn't do some things. Looking back, it did feel like I was allowed to enjoy life for fear I may not have a long one. But I wanted so badly to do everything the other kids were doing. So when the doctor said I couldn't, I said, oh yeah, watch me. (laughs) I didn't let much of anything hold me back. I did all the things, and I had all the fun, until I got tired. In fact, I remember coming home from summer camps and sleeping for at least a whole day afterwards. I was told I would most likely have another surgery before I was a young adult. I definitely didn't let that scare me or slow me down. If that time came, then I would deal with it then. So simple, my thoughts then. I didn't really worry about how I felt. 
I would just go and go until I needed a rest. Who knew that would turn into a community college, giving me a talent grant to play basketball and run track for them. This picture came from like a, a track program with all the athletes listed in it. So I'm about 17 there, feeling pretty great. No surgery need in sight so far. A collegiate athlete, just living life one day at a time and not worrying about what might happen next. As an adult, though, I couldn't keep seeing a pediatric cardiologist. Unfortunately, I didn't belong in a specific category for care. Adult cardiologists didn't really have any patients that had survived from pediatric issues. I saw a new doctor who didn't really know me or know much about a pediatric patient surviving into adulthood, and I let him derail me and my oh-yeah-watch-me attitude. It hit me pretty hard. He left me with the feeling that my heart was deteriorating and I didn't have much hope for longevity or a quality of life. As a result, I became quite depressed and felt very alone. And the next year, I broke up with my college sweetheart, who I had been engaged to, dropped out of college and made some other poor life choices. And then my college sweetheart died in a car accident. Continued to derail me. That sent me on a new spiral downward, living a fast life like there was no tomorrow. I was making unhealthy choices, and they weren't doing my heart health any favors. About 1996, I met my husband, Jeff. (laughs) He's hiding in the man cave back there. (laughs) He wasn't very much like other guys I had dated. Little did I know his background was quite similar to mine. Mom took him to church without dad. Mom sent him to Christian school until the eighth grade. And like me, something happened in adolescence that he, let, he allowed to rock his faith. Like me, he fell away from church and from his relationship with God. You could categorize us as recovering Christians. Well, we wanted a family, of course. But I had been told at some point by some doctor, my heart may not be able to withstand a pregnancy, that the increase in blood volume could put a large stress on my heart. Well, so far I'd been defying doctors and not living my life based on fear. So being that I felt okay, and what the other doctor that had told me at age 19 didn't seem to come true, so I said, oh yeah, watch me. So I kind of got myself back. Nine months of an easy pregnancy led to a labor and an emergency C-section in September 2003. We named her Allison for my maiden name. In my tired, delirious state after the C-section, I was nodding in and out as they handed her to me. I was pretty drugged up and could barely keep my eyes open. They thrust her at me, and I felt like there was an octopus trying to help me get her to latch. I also could not see that something about her wasn't as expected. She was little, but full term, six pounds, ten ounces. She kept her hands contracted, closed, but not all the fingers were bent. Her hands looked baggy like they didn't fit in her skin. And her feet were clubbed. Later finding out from her doctor at OHSU, Clubfoot was his specialty and had been in the field for 50 years, that they were the most severe case he had ever seen. While still on the birthing unit at the hospital, it felt like the staff wasn't being straight with us. Their faces told us there was a lot that wasn't being said. At four days old, she was given an orthopedic diagnosis that much explained her appearance, but as time went on, it didn't seem to explain all the things. She didn't make eye contact. She was never able to latch and struggled with a bottle, too. She wasn't lifting her head or rolling over, and I began to experience feelings of grief. I began to process that she wasn't the baby we had expected to have. But at this point, we weren't sure exactly what kind of baby we did have. Early on in the processing that something was different, unexpected, and was going to have extra challenges, an old friend said to me, God chose you to be her mom because you can. I repeated this to myself many, many times over the years to come. 
I went into mom mode, even though I was grieving the child we thought we were going to have, a mode that was protective, proactive, and I advocated for her. But to be honest, I wasn't sure what I needed to advocate for exactly. At nine months, she had her first seizure. They were the kind where she bent in half at the waist, bore down, held her breath, and then would pass out. That sent us on a roller coaster of doctor visits, medicine trials, and meticulous documenting of the seizures, medicines, and all the changes in her. One trial even included me giving multiple daily injections to my infant. Eventually, we subdued them and her into a vegetable-like state. After that, her growth chart started flatlining. The result was a G-tube, a tube that sticks out of the body directly into the stomach. So on the daily, I was opening a can and dumping it into the tubing that was connected to the button on the outside of her tummy. This went against many gut feelings that said it wasn't the best I could do for her. But I was in shock and feeling around in the dark. After all, didn't the doctors know best? To give you a picture of the kind of world we were in, I remember one meeting we had with someone because we were searching for some sort of help, some sort of services, some kind of resources we could tap into. This person brought us in, sat us down, and asked us what we needed. We asked, what can you give us? Well, what do you need? (laughs) Uh, What do you have to offer? It went back and forth like this, and we ultimately left with no help, no resources, no extra insight, nothing. I knew I needed some help. I just didn't know what kind, from who, or from where. I remembered that there was a mom's group at a church nearby, the same church that I had heard gave a lot of support to a high school friend who lost her daughter to cancer. So I joined Mops at Church on the Hill. I didn't know it then, but God was working on me. It didn't take me long to realize that Allison was God's way of taking me by the shoulders, shaking me and saying, come back to me, Amy. At 18 months of age, Allison was diagnosed with cerebral palsy. The definition of that is a condition marked by impaired muscle coordination Uh, also called spastic paralysis, and or other disabilities, typically caused by damage to the brain before or at birth. She basically fell under the umbrella of brain damage that impairs the body. That didn't give us a why of any kind, but I was relieved to finally have somewhere to start the journey and some resources to tap into, maybe. For the following years, we made medical decisions based on the cerebral palsy diagnosis and that she may have many great years with us. That meant we needed to address her orthopedic impairments with the thought that if we did, she may walk someday, or at minimum, be able to bear weight. We chose to address the orthopedic impairments, which involved many surgeries. In fact, (laughs) we were at the doctor's office in McMinnville so much that we had backdoor privileges, so we didn't have to go through the germy waiting room because a simple virus to her meant a hospital stay. It's fair to say that I was so busy taking care of her needs, advocating for services, making sure all the medical bases were covered, that maybe I wasn't remembering that I had my own issues to take into consideration. I was tired all the time. But I thought that was part of being a new mom. It couldn't be me. Because Allison never slept through the whole night without having a seizure, aspirating, or needing something. Allison was around 18 months and inpatient at Dornbecker Hospital. I wasn't feeling so well that day, so I had her nurse take my vitals. She quickly told me I should go to the ER downstairs and get checked out. That was hard for me to do. Leave Allison upstairs without me? She was nonverbal, and no one knew her cues quite like I did. I went on faith that I wouldn't be gone long, and everything was fine. They hooked me up to monitors, took a health history, and disappeared to see if they could find some medical records, because that was where I had had both of my open-heart surgeries such a long time ago. 
So there I am resting because I needed to go back so that I could go back upstairs and take care of Allison. Uh, there was no rest to be had. Alarms started to beep. So I sat up on the bed and I'm checking out the monitor, just hoping I could mute the beeping and go back to sleep. No. The nurse comes barreling in, eyes wide open, and they just about popped out of her head when she asked, are you okay? Uh, yeah, just, it's kind of noisy and I'd like to rest. She then told me she was running in to call a code because my heart rate was below 30. No wonder I was so tired. It took them quite a while to figure out what was wrong, let alone know what to do with me. I just didn't fit the mold of the typical heart patient. Typical is not something we did in our family. After every cardiac test in the book, they determined that after two heart surgeries, the electrical systems in my heart were tired, and I, at age 30, would need a pacemaker. I still had to take care of Allison, though. For six weeks, I couldn't lift with my right arm because they didn't want me to pull out the wire they had plugged into my heart. Oh, I'm right-handed. <laughs> and Allison was 18 months old, didn't sit up on her own, and still infant, but 18 months size. So she was in a crib that was up high, and I had to scooch in real close and sort of scooch her around with one hand, roll her up my body, carry her out to the living room where we'd spend the day, and then I would carefully sit down and roll her down my body till she was comfortable on the floor for the day. You know, after that, it really felt great to have my heart beating again. <laughs> I didn't know it wasn't, but it sure felt good afterwards. <laughs> Allison really was a happy child. She only cried if something was wrong. She was nonverbal but she made the sweetest sounds. It was hard sometimes to determine if her sounds were intentional or had meaning, but she did make the muh sound, and when she did, I'm sure she was talking to me. I taught her to lift her head when laying on her back if she wanted to be picked up and held, and eventually, as long as the seizure activity wasn't getting in the way, she was able to nod and shake her head in agreement or disagreement. There was this one time, she was in the hospital, a fever of 106, laying there like a lethargic lump. In fact, she, she may, as well, may as well been asleep, but her favorite nurse walked in, Zach. <laughs> a tall, blonde heartthrob, and so sweet to her. He walked in, and she immediately rolled over and started hooting and making sweet sounds with a huge smile on her face trying to get his attention. She might have been like her mom. <laughs> in 2006, we were feeling a little robbed of the typical parental experience, and we decided to try again for another baby. We had decided that if we had another baby like Allison, at least we knew how to do it. At this point... It should have been a breeze now that my heart was beating, right? Nope. Again, with the not typical. Because of the unknown nature of Allison's diagnosis and the recent changes with the pacemaker, it was a high-risk pregnancy. I had so many ultrasounds, I could have made a flip book. And if it could go wrong, it felt like it did. I had placenta previa and an incarcerated uterus. Of course, it couldn't just be easy. Bed rest was my thing. But there was a two-year-old-sized child with infant and medical needs to care for. After all the difficulty during the pregnancy, I was able to have a vaginal birth after cesarean, which was important because of the recovery involved. I needed to care for Allison, and I don't recall having a lot of help nearby. Keala Rose Yates was born April 4, 2007. There she is right there. <laughs> this was a whole new experience for sure. You could say I was a first-time mom, but I had two babies, and they weren't twins. As Allison got older, her needs got more intense, and hospital stays got longer. 
When Allison stayed in the hospital, so did I and my nursing infant. And Keala was attached to her sister in a way that only sisters would understand. She would lay next to her and put her hands on her skin and just cuddle. She would help us push the wheelchair, and she never ran off. She was a busy child, but she knew where her place was, next to her sister with her hand on the wheelchair. When Keala learned how to walk, that was done in the hospital, <laughs> she couldn't stay with Sissy nearly as much. Jeff and I would take turns staying with the girls. Keala would stay with friends sometimes, and somehow Jeff would still go to work. Looking back, I can't always grasp how we did that juggling act. Hospital stays often landed on Jeff's vacations. And when those were over, or he was out of sick time, he would go home, go back to work, and I would stay. This meant sometimes over the holidays, sometimes missing out on family things, and sometimes we felt we knew the hospital staff better than we knew anyone else. Allison was a beautiful child with angelic features, but her skin and hair were ashy, and her eyes seemed lifeless. Not in that picture, but she did. <laughs> I didn't know what caused it, but being the advocate mom that I was, I was struggling with the can of yuck they wanted me to feed her. I felt as though her food was something that I could control, and with so many things out of my control, I needed one thing. I researched a movement by other moms called the blenderized diet. I presented to the doctors that I wanted to make Allison's food in a blender at home. <sighs> well, <laughs> they never heard of anything like that. <clears throat> they doubted me, but I felt strongly about this. So when Allison's care group, made up of doctors, various therapists, and dietitians, questioned my idea of feeding her real food, I asked them, so should I just give this can of food to my toddler, the same one you give me for Allison? <laughs> they thought that idea was preposterous. But why should it be for different for Allison is what I thought, because she couldn't tell me she was hungry or what she liked and what she didn't like. The care panel of specialists monitored what I was doing until Allison started gaining weight. Her color changed, and she was beginning to be more cognitively aware. <clears throat> when we had an inpatient stay in the hospital, I would bring my blender, order a tray of fresh food from the cafeteria, and blend away in the hospital room. They sent dietitians to check up on me. But it turned into them learning from me and sending students in to ask questions. Eventually, we had a mini-fridge that lived on the pediatric floor, and it would be put in our room during each stay. I kind of wish I had a number of days or stays we were in the hospital to paint a better picture, but I'm glad I didn't count. Not counting meant I was focused on loving my kids every day, being present for them in the best way I knew how, and not keeping a chart of how bad it was. 2009 was a um, pretty much a blur. A blur of hospitalizations and complications, trials and challenges resulting in more medical equipment at home. In October of that year, on my birthday, Allison was inpatient again, and the neurology doctor came in with some papers and a long face. She was one of her many doctors that we saw the most, so much so we were on a first-name basis. The papers she was holding had a new diagnosis. <clears throat> on the papers, there were pictures of other kids that looked like they could be Allison's twins. And the name, progressive encephalopathy with hypsarrhythmia and optic atrophy. <sighs> Mouthful. It is a rare neurodegenerative disorder. In fact, less than a thousand cases have ever been diagnosed worldwide. Easily explained, she had abnormal brain waves, low muscle tone, seizures, poor feeding, poor sleep patterns, visual loss, special facial features, and her cerebellum was atrophying, so getting smaller, which meant her autonomic systems would fail. It also came with a one in four chance of any child we had to be born with Piho syndrome. With Keala, we were lucky. But we felt we had no choice than to not have any more children. After all my heart stuff, I felt too old and too tired to risk having a child with severe needs again. 
that was an entirely new thing to grieve. By the new year, she was in the hospital with RSV, a respiratory infection serious to at-risk patients and babies. During this time, we had finally gotten her whole medical team to start collaborating, and we got them into a meeting together. There was at least a dozen doctors and some social workers packed in the conference room that day. So much was said, but the big question that I asked, why are we making her well each time for her to only get sicker each time after that? Jeff and I made the hard decision to bring her home on hospice care. We had her for 10 more days. For those 10 days and for her six years, we had countless doctors, nurses, specialists, social workers, therapists, school aides, home caregivers, home health nurses, families with like situations, friends from church helping us, people who had come into our lives because of her, people who came around us, supported us, held us up, and walked through life with us. When she was gone, it felt as though our purpose was gone, and so were 90% of those people. It's funny, when she was born, we lost people from our lives because they didn't know how to handle that she was different or not what they had expected, and now we were losing people all over again. In our time of grief, we would have been lost without our church and the people in it. They loved us, fed us, and prayed for us all the time. Years after she was gone, I met people who told me, I prayed for you and your family many times. And that was the first time I was meeting them. Our community was still around us, but their lives went on. Ours had just come to a screeching halt as we knew it. Our purpose had gone home to heaven, just like what Kayla said to her that morning. While I knew she was no longer suffering and that our family could have dreams again, my whole body hurt with grief. I physically hurt. Every fiber of my being ached. I knew that I still had Jeff and Keala, and life could be different, but it hurt so bad that I turned to things to numb my pain. I spent five years in a deep depression with various psychotropics and a handful of meds to counteract symptoms from those, not to mention the self-medicating I did with alcohol. I was slowly killing myself because it hurt so bad. By the time I figured out that I had a drinking problem, my heart had become or had come to rely on it. When I quit drinking, my heart developed new rhythm issues. We tried all kinds of heart medications, but ultimately I needed a new and better pacemaker with a second wire to plug into my heart. I spent so much of the five years after her death feeling bad feeling sad, feeling like a part of me was gone, that I for had forgotten who I had been before her and who I still needed to be. I had forgotten that I still had two people who needed me. I'd forgotten because the person who had been the center of my daily activity wasn't there anymore, and I had spun out of control. I had really just lost sight lost sight of who I was without Allison. I lost sight that I had a purpose for which God created me. I knew I needed to take care of myself, and part of that was to search for who I was without her. I was still a mother, a wife, and a strong woman with desires and dreams that I had long since pushed aside in order to become supermom. I had to find my drive, my new purpose, and some new dreams if I was going to keep my family intact. The searching for myself and the healing process led me back to the roots of who I am. I was someone who didn't let anything hold her back. I was someone who desired adventure, thrills, and something out of the ordinary. In 2016, I started to become physically active again 
And creepy Facebook knew it somehow. <laughs> an ad for Spartan Race, also known as an obstacle course race that is military-inspired, came across my newsfeed. We had one goal in mind when we started Spartan, and it was to rip people off the couch. People are looking for something new, and you're out there, and there's great camaraderie with other people, and it's a great community, so they like the challenge, and they come back because they get in this Spartan family. Are you ready? I'm addicted. Woo! I want to find out what's in here. I want to find out what I'm capable of. You have to get out there, and although you've never done it, and it's outside of your comfort zone, you got to tell yourself, I can do this. You're a part of something bigger than just you running the race. And across the finish line, I feel alive. This is the best time of my life right here, Spartan Race. So I shared the post on Facebook and asked if anyone wanted to do it with me. 30 minutes later, a friend of mine who's been one of my cheerleaders texted and said she'd registered for the race in August of 2017. Shoot, now I had to do it. <laughs> it was November and I needed to do some serious training because I had just had knee surgery and I had gained a lot of weight. <clears throat> and I wasn't ready at all. <laughs> in fact, the penalty for a failed obstacle in the race is 30 burpees. If you don't know what that is, you go down into a push-up, flat on the ground, you get back up again, and you jump. <clears throat> I couldn't even do one when I started. <clears throat> that year, I did two races, and as you can see... I haven't stopped yet. <laughs> For me, obstacle course racing is a physical representation of the emotional and mental obstacles I face in my life. <clears throat> By the way, the doctor wanted to fight with me about doing these for fear I would wear out the pacemaker and its wires. <laughs> I told him I would rather he replaces the hardware than sit at home on the couch doing nothing. Kind of like, oh yeah, watch me. I definitely live aware of my condition, but I'm not afraid of it because I know where I'm going and I will go there when he is done with me. And it really is because of him that I have the ability to pursue the things in life that bring me joy. <clears throat> After I finished my first race, I cried while crossing the finish line. I cried because something in me had reawakened. I cried because I had just accomplished this intimidating, difficult thing, and I couldn't wait to do another one. <laughs> Actually, I loved them so much, I now work for Spartan Race. I am still healing from the loss of Allison every day, healing from losing her and losing myself in the process. I am more the person I was before she was born, but I will never be that person again because I had to go through that to be who I am now. There is a verse that explains my whole journey. One more time. Yeah, I kind of had, had some success last year. I got a second place in the old lady age group. verse that explains my whole journey, and it was marked for me by my grandfather before he went to heaven. It has been significant to me many times throughout my life and continues to bring me hope. It's Philippians 3, 13 and 14. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Uh, so Brooke and Mary Lynn are going to come back up and sing a song that was written by 
the Songs of Love Foundation. They create free personalized songs to uplift children and teens facing tough medical, physical, or emotional challenges. Each song is professionally produced with lyrics containing the child's name and references to his or her favorite things. We filled out a questionnaire, and they wrote us a song. you enjoyed listening to Amy's story just as much as I have now for many times. And as promised, I have Amy here with us. And I just want, first of all, thank you, Amy, for taking time to come in. My pleasure. (laughs) Some of you might recognize Amy's voice. She was actually on episode two. Um, If you've been listening to this podcast since the beginning, or if you, you know, are are catching up, I had Amy and uh, Lucetta and Eli, our three previous McMinnville live speakers on an episode to just talk about what it was like and why sharing our stories are valuable. So it hasn't been that long no. since you shared your story. No. <laughs> so we're not really doing a huge, you know, catch me up on your life of the last several years, but I'd still wanted you to have a chance to, you know, just, just speak to the listeners and anybody who really resonated with your story, maybe went through some of the same things. And if they had a chance to go up to you, what message would you have for them specifically? Well, the first thing I want to remind you is while it hasn't been very long in days, it feels like it's been years and years since January. That's true. So much has happened in <laughs> our world since then. And when I re-listened to the promo video this morning to kind of refresh my memory, mm-hmm. the words felt pertinent to what we have gone through in the last six months and, mm-hmm. and really more realistically in the last three to four months since COVID happened. So I feel like while I could speak specifically to a person that my story night resonated with, I could also speak specifically to someone who feels like they just keep getting knocked down again by all the things that happen in their lives. One thing that was said to me 
shortly after Allison died that has resonated with me and I share it as many times as I can is God does not protect us from what he will perfect us through. And if you really break that down, it's a reminder that when we ask God, why did you let this happen to me? That has nothing to do with him. (laughs) But he's going to use the trials that we go through to stretch and grow us as well as make us better. Also to make us lean into him, which is one of the things that I said in the promo video. He wants us to rely on him. So sometimes he allows those things to knock us down. And, you know, and if a mom who also lost a child came up to me and just, well, okay, so that has happened. Yeah, I'm sure. (laughs) And there are no words between us, actually. There's just a look of, I know, and you know. And not many words have to be said. But if someone was right in the middle of the trial of, you know, an ill child or um, a child with special needs trying to tap into resources, which has to be extremely difficult in these times that we're talking about, these current times, I would encourage them to not get discouraged, to pray about everything, to keep advocating for what they know is best. And, you know, Moms like that are on my prayer list. I can't imagine what it's like right now trying to get resources and to feel like you have a sense of normalcy if you have a child with special needs. Yeah, there really are so many other dominoes, I guess, in regards to the way our new normal is. Um, and regardless of, you know, where, where you are on the spectrum of opinions with, with everything, regardless right. of that, there are just so many other things that are affected by the way life is at the moment and things that many of us maybe don't realize or think of because that's not part of our life story, but somebody else's life story, it is. And now suddenly you're having to rethink things. I think regardless of our opinions and our situations, we all have our own challenges. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes people would say to me, I can't do what you're doing. Mm-hmm. I couldn't go through what you're going through. Well, I feel the same way about other people. Mm-hmm. My challenges are my challenges. You have different ones. Yeah. And everyone out there has different ones. Mm-hmm. And it's about the way we react to them. Are you going to lean into God or are you going to throw your hands up and lay down? Mm-hmm. That's what the enemy wants. He does not want us to lean into God mm-hmm. and to stretch and to grow and become better and become more faithful. And I think all the things that I've gone through have done exactly that for me. Instead of really breaking me down, however, I did hit bottom, but I had to hit bottom to to climb back out again. And just take that as my word of encouragement. The bottom doesn't last forever. The bad stuff doesn't last forever. There is light at the end of the tunnel, even when it feels so dark. And reach out to someone. Mm -hmm. Reach out to someone you know that you can lean on. And it may not be the same person for every situation. It may not be the same person in this season of life as it was in a different season of life. There are people there for us in each season. It's so important to be understood. We all need somebody to get it. I imagine that there are listeners who don't feel like they have that that just sort of feel, you know, maybe feel alone in their particular struggle. And as we close, we always like to pray for all of the listeners um, and just sort of keeping in mind specifically those that maybe did, you know, or, or who are going through something very similar to your story, or even if it's not the same story, but can identify with the same feelings, with the same emotions. And your your promotional video really fits just about everything. It does. And when I sat down to record it, I didn't have those words, but they came Mm -hmm. because I sat and I prayed and they came. Can I pray for the listeners? Yes, please. Thank you. Heavenly Father, I praise you for this ministry that is reaching out to um, women who need to identify with someone who is going through or has gone through similar situations. Sometimes when we're in the depth of whatever trial we're in, it can feel pretty lonely and 
hopefully the my story reaches out to someone to make them understand that not only are they not the only ones who have gone through hard stuff, but that, Lord, you are standing right next to them. Lord, I pray right now the women listening feel your presence, Lord, and they are infused with an oh yeah, watch me attitude that they don't let whatever is going on around them tear them down because the bottom sucks, Lord. And if they hit bottom, I pray they are reaching out to you. Lord, I pray that they are listening for you. I pray, Lord, that they are laying their trials down at your throne and handing it over to you to handle. I pray that they have a friend to talk to, not just in you, Lord, but a person, a face, an ear, a shoulder. And I just pray for the resilience in this hard time and the perseverance that we all need to get through um, the extra world trial, trials that are happening in our world right now. Thank you, Lord, that we have you, and thank you that we have this podcast. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Amy. I really admire you. I appreciate you. I love that I get to sit across from you and that you're my neighbor <laughs> <laughs> and in my house church group, and it's it's been amazing. It's been my pleasure, and I just pray that my podcast touches at least one, mm-hmm. maybe inspires one. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure God is working all the time, whether we see it or not. He most certainly is. And I'm so grateful for your heart to share your story and to really open that up. So thank you. And thank you to everybody who has been listening, um, whether this is the first time you've tuned in or you've been with us since the very beginning. We're, we're really happy to be able to do this and happy that, that you're here to listen. And we hope you come back next week for the next story. Good night, y'all. I'm not crying. You're crying. <laughs> The Story Night Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Mac. For more women's stories, visit calvarymac.com slash women. Mm-hmm.